listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So we finished the book of Luke this morning. We're going to be jumping into a a short sermon series, like Dave mentioned, in McDonough as it is in heaven. In McDonough as it is in heaven. And and here's the question that I want to begin with this morning. If you woke up, and we've been kind of setting this series up for the past couple of weeks, but if you woke up tomorrow morning and your life was in heaven, how would you live? If you woke up tomorrow morning and you still had your wife, kids, job, everything else was the same, your house, but it was in heaven. How would you live? We're going to look at this. We're going to, I'm going to begin each one of these sermons with uh, a take on that same question. How, how would you know that you were in heaven? Would things look different? They, they would look different, hopefully. But why is that? Because here's what Matthew chapter 6 says, and this will be up on the screen, several passages. We don't have a primary text necessarily this morning. We're going to look at several different passages. While that seems outlandish, it's actually the fulfillment of what many call the Lord's Prayer. I would call it the disciples' prayer because the disciples go to Jesus in Matthew 6 and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. He says, you, disciples, pray this way. So the disciples' prayer goes like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You're like, man, yeah, I know this. Football teams pray this before and after the games. Even they know it. They understand it. You've probably prayed this prayer out loud together before. Our kids learn this prayer at an early age. So why does it seem crazy to us that your kingdom would come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Why is it crazy for us to think that tomorrow morning we would wake up and our lives would look more like heaven than they do today? Maybe it's because we're not believing that we are an ally with God in his kingdom. How often do we want God to be an ally for our kingdom? What do most of our prayers reflect? His kingdom or mine? You don't have to answer that out loud. I don't want you to feel bad. But this prayer, the fulfillment of this prayer would be the kingdom of God, heaven coming down. I have seven questions for us to look at this morning. I'm going to go through these hopefully rather quickly. I had someone send me a text. I had two texts this morning. One was from a gracious friend who asked how he could pray for me, like I mentioned a few minutes ago. One was from a friend who, maybe not as gracious, but um, they said, hey, have you heard this Brad Paisley song? I said, no, what do you mean? They said, well, there's a song about when he's sitting in church and the weather's real nice outside and the preacher won't stop preaching. Um, I said, thanks. Thanks for that encouragement. I I really appreciate that. So I only listen to Christian music, so I don't know Brad Paisley. Um, I'm just kidding. 
Uh, but I really appreciate just both sides of that, seeing the humanity of our church and uh, the spirituality. So I'm hopefully going to go through these seven questions quickly. Uh, but the first question is this. We must begin, if we're going to talk about heaven, we have to begin by asking, what is heaven like? And with, with several of these questions, I'm going to need a little bit of feedback, okay? This is not just, I'm going to tell you all these answers. I want us to, especially during the, these, these three weeks, I want us to answer these questions together. So this question is for us, for all of us, and so you can respond non-rhetorically, which means out loud, uh, verbally. So what is heaven like? What do you know heaven to be like? Praise. Praise, yeah. Absent of sin. Absent of sin, yeah. Peaceful. Peaceful. No pain. No pain. Got a couple of amens out of that one. Say it again. Beautiful, Beautiful yeah. What else? The presence of God. Perfect. Say it again. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. No One more time. No crying. No crying. Yeah. No woman. No cry. Here's what heaven is going to be like. Here's what heaven is like this morning. Here's the phrase I want you to take away from this. Relational beauty. Relational beauty. All of these things that y'all just mentioned are true. We see the presence of Christ there. It's relational beauty. Secondly, the second question is this. And this is for y'all. In the Bible, how did people react when they saw heaven? So there's two parts to that. Who saw heaven or experienced a piece of heaven? We just saw a couple uh, there in Luke chapter 24 when we finished that last week. But when people saw heaven, how did they react? So who saw heaven? And then what was the reaction to heaven? Daniel. Say it again. Daniel. Daniel. He wasn't able to sleep. Yeah. He was up all night. Speak. Speak sorry. Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah. What was his reaction? Yeah. Moses. Moses. He was glowing with the Yeah, he had that nuclear halo around him, yeah. <laughs> he said Moses, for those who couldn't hear back here. Who else? Paul. Paul, yeah. What was his reaction? Shock and awe. Shock and awe, yeah. Who else? Who did we see in Luke 24? The ladies went to the tomb, and who did they see there? They were afraid. They saw these two men glowing in wonder. Their response is one of humility. For all of these folks, they're just like, man, they are blown away when they see the presence of God. Humility. It's not shock and awe. Was it because they were scared of the presence of God? No, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us that the beauty of heaven is so much more than we could ever imagine or dream or even think. And they were in awe. Oh my goodness. I'm just, even Moses, he didn't even see the face of God. He, was, he had his head stuck between his legs in the cleft of a rock, right? What is that, Exodus? Uh, I forget what chapter. 33, something in Exodus. So Moses is there. He's got, his, he's got his face there. He's like, oh my goodness. God walks by and Moses says, hey, can I see your face? God's like, you can't handle this. You can't handle my face. 
He just gets a glimpse of the back of the presence of God and he comes down and people are like, what's wrong with you? He's like, God walked by. (laughs) He's glowing. We can't comprehend his beauty. The third question is this. How does the Trinity relate? So we have heaven. What is heaven like? How do people react? They were in awe. So we see, I want us to go to John chapter 17. And this will be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. But I'm going to look at some some selected verses from John chapter 17 because I want us to answer this question. How is the Trinity relating in heaven? What is the ideal picture of relational beauty? John chapter 17. Again, I'm not going to hit all these verses. But John begins in verse number 1. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words... And by the way, this is Christ on the way to the cross, right? He has uh, the last supper there with his disciples, I think in chapter 14. Chapter 15, he begins walking across to the garden of Gethsemane and he's teaching and speaking to his disciples. So here in chapter 17, he's on his way to the cross. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Real quick. I want us to see here how the Trinity is relating in heaven. This is the best picture I think that we have of it in the scriptures. Verse two, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We can jump down to verse number 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. He's praying here for his disciples. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. You see a theme here? That they also may be in us. In the same way that me and you, Father, are one, that they, my disciples, my followers, may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you have sent me, and loved them, even as you loved me. These last two verses of this chapter. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So how is the Trinity relating in heaven? Oneness, one. Unity. Union. Glory. There's humility even there because the the son is saying to the father, this is the work that you've given me. There's deference. What is your preference? I'll do that. 
all the while, there's equality as well. Jesus doesn't say, hey, Father, since you're better than me, since you're above me, he says, no. Even though we're one, we are equal, I'm going to perfectly obey you for the sake of them and so that they can be made one with us. That is relational beauty. That is love. That is sacrifice. Relational beauty. And the world, friend, the world wants to make the world look as good as possible. That's the world's goal. That's the culture's goal. But the Spirit has been sent to us. Even here, Christ says, I'm going to send my Spirit so that they can know how glorious Jesus Christ is, so they can know the glory of God the Father. That's why we, and that's why all of creation exists, is to experience and to proclaim and to bask in the relational beauty of the Trinity. And Jesus prayed. He says to his disciples, he prayed, your kingdom come, your relational beauty be done on earth as it is in heaven. Crazy, huh? Outlandish. I want us to go to Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter one, probably my favorite book in the Bible. Here's the question, the fourth question I want us to answer this morning. What does heaven say about who you are? In other words, what does God say about who you are? As I go through Ephesians chapter one, I want you to do this. I told you this is gonna be a little bit different. I'm gonna read this passage over us this morning. Whatever the best way is for you to hear, for you to listen, for this to take root in your heart, if it means you closing your eyes, if it means reading it off the screen, reading it out of the word of God, whatever that is, I invite you to do that this morning. But I'm gonna read through Ephesians chapter one and I'm gonna begin at verse number three. I'm gonna read through verse number 14. And when I get done, I want to know which word stands out to you most. We did this several weeks ago at, in the Spiritual Conversations workshop, if you were here. Powerful time. So I, want, I wanted to read through Ephesians chapter 1. What word stands out to you the most? Paul writes this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Which verse in there, you're like, man, that identity statement, that identity word, that's what I want to cling on to. Which word is that for you? In him. Chosen. Beloved. Sealed. Which, by the way, that word sealed, uh, it doesn't mean um, like you seal an envelope or even like with a, with a wax seal. It actually means branded the way that you would brand cattle. You can't take that off. Sealed. What else? Belonging. Belonging. Community. Adoption. Unity. Adoption. Blameless. Predestined. His purpose. His purpose. Guarantee. Guarantee. Mm. Permanent, yeah. There's nothing that can change or shape that. Friend, you are living out of a particular identity. One that you have created for yourself or one that you are hoping to create for yourself. Culture would tell us this. Who you are is based on what you do. That's what culture says. Who you are is based on what you do. The good news of the gospel is that who you are, your identity, is based on what Christ has done. And who you are is going to determine how you live. If you notice here, all of these, most of these words are past tense words. What is heaven's view of you? It's not that you're a sinner. It's not that you looked at that this past week. It's not that you spoke to your wife that way. It's not that you spent your money on something you shouldn't have. It's not that you haven't done this or you should have done this. It's not a sense of commission or omission. Because what's the view of heaven? Paul is writing this from when? If you go back to verse number three, is he saying this? Okay, if you finally work your way, uh, make sure all your salvation is right, if you do all the right things, then heaven is going to see you that way? No, what's the perspective? What's the timeline here? From before the foundations of the world, that's how God sees you. As holy and blameless, as adopted, as predestined, as chosen, as redeemed. There's a guarantee there. That's relational beauty. Not based on what you can do, but based on what Christ has done. That is a true and good identity. Question number five. Take that word that you just had. If Christ was the source of your life, how would you live? So if we recognize that our identity does come from Christ, that we just saw in Ephesians chapter one, and this is time for, might be the last time for feedback, I'm not sure, we'll see how things go. How would you live if you were living from that place of adoption, chosen, guarantee, pre- whatever that word is, how would you live? To praise him. Oh, to please him, yeah. Humbly. 
peacefully. Holy. And boldly, yes. She's like, no, I don't, not holy, no. Boldly. Secure, yeah. Yeah, confidently. Fearless. Present. Yeah, loving only what God loves. A little bit louder. Purposefully. Yeah, amen. Thankfully. Redeemed. It looks a lot like John 17, doesn't it? If we were living out of the identity that Christ has already given us, we would be living in relational beauty. Here's some that I, I wrote down uh, last week when I was thinking through this. I'm going to take a picture of this. You can. I'm just going to hustle through these. But if Jesus was your source of life, I know for me, I would live intimately with him. It would be honest. Somebody mentioned present. Contemplative. I would be thinking on, sitting in what Christ has done. Dynamic. There would be highs and lows. Joyful. It would be ideal. It would be a daily living. It would be fun, full. I would recognize that life is given to me. That life is breathed by God. In Genesis chapter one, what does God say about our life, our identity? That it's very good. It would be close. My life with him would be open and secure. I would have that assurance. I would have his power. And I would be fruitful in living with him. Man, I wish I had that. I wish Ephesians 1 was true. Somebody said it is true. (laughs) Amen. Question number six. If you were living out of life with God, how would your life look different? And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take about 15 or 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and I want you to write this down. Just write down your answer to this question real quick. If you want to just think of it, that's fine. I'm not smart enough to remember things that I write down often. That's why I write them down so I can go back and reference them. But I want you to write down the answer to this question. If you were living out of life with God, So if those things on the previous slide and whatever you said, if that was true, if you were living out of that, how would your life look different tomorrow than it does today? 15, 20 seconds. As you wrote that down, or as you thought about that, was your answer to that question something that would make your life better? I know for me, when I wrote this down this past week, it was. But friend, the invitation to the gospel is not to a better life. The invitation of the gospel is into life. 
It is into a relationship with the Trinity. It's relational beauty. John 17, what's Jesus about to go do? Live his best life now? Is his life about to get better? Is he about to see all of his hopes and dreams fulfilled? Does he go to the Father and say, here's my list of things to do? Like he's sitting on Santa's lap? Here's my list of things. Here, come, come fulfill these for me. Come make them better. Because I'm living for you. So if I'm living for you, my life is going to look better. That's not the promise. The promise, the invitation of the gospel is into life with God. Whatever life looks like, you get God. And guess what? The reality of Ephesians 1 carries through if life is fantastic or if life is terrible. If you just got a raise or if you were in the throes of depression. If your kid just responded to the good news of the gospel and he got saved or if you just got diagnosed with cancer. If you just met the girl or the guy of your dreams or if your car just got totaled. Your identity does not change. You get life with God. Lastly, how can we pursue relational beauty in our personal lives? How do we pursue relational beauty in our lives? And here's what I want to answer this morning. And so as we look at the next few weeks, next week I want to lean in a little more into what would a community what does community look like in heaven? Then the last week, how is McDonough going to know that heaven is here? But today I want to look at, in our personal lives, we begin there and then we'll work our way out over the next couple of weeks. But how can you pursue relational beauty? How can we pursue relational beauty in our lives? And here's how, friends. By creating space for spiritual habits in all of life. By creating space for spiritual habits in all of life. Now, let me define a couple of terms. terms. One, here's how I define relational beauty. We get the opportunity to enjoy his presence, the presence of God. We get to know his heart, and we get to be known fully by him being shaped into his image. Relational beauty is a means of grace. Being in a relationship with the creator of the universe is not icing on the cake. If everything else in my life is going fine, maybe then I'll pursue a relationship with Christ. No. Relational beauty is the powder, the gunpowder inside of the shotgun shell. That's the reason the shell is there. It's its power and purpose is inside. Without that powder, it's nothing. It's an empty shell. Who cares? This is a beautiful means of grace. The second word there is spiritual Spiritual habits. Maybe you know this as spiritual disciplines. But I think sometimes we get that word discipline. It's like, I got to do this. If I don't, something bad is going to happen. You think discipline that way, right? And I would say spiritual habits. I can't change your heart. And spiritual habits aren't going to change your heart either. But if you desire to have relational beauty with the Trinity, then here are some ways that you can do it. But when I use the word spiritual, I don't mean some new age thing. I don't mean uh, some hocus pocus. I mean, it is caused and shaped by the spirit of God. It is caused and shaped by the spirit of God. In Psalm chapter 37 and verse number four, he tells, uh, he tells us to delight ourselves in him. 
Delight ourselves in him. But God doesn't say, delight yourself in me, all right, and then walk away. In Ezekiel chapter 36, he makes a a promise there to Ezekiel and to his people. And we saw this, this new covenant back in Luke chapter 22 at the Last Supper. What does he say? I'm creating a new covenant with you. And I'm going to send what? My spirit to fill it up. I have commanded it, and I will make it possible for you. And if we go over to Philippians chapter 2, what, what does he say in Philippians chapter 2? Uh, it, doesn't say, it doesn't say, therefore, in Philippians 2 verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The Bible doesn't say God is at work within you so you can check out. It doesn't say God is at work within you so you can go take a nap. God is at work within you so you don't have to worry about it. God is at work within you. You can't add anything else to your sanctification. God is at work within you so you can watch and go binge watch whatever series you want to go watch. No. It it says God is at work within you so work out your salvation. Because it is God who is at work within you. Here's what I want us to see this morning. And this will be on the screen. Big picture. Habits don't earn your enjoyment in God. Habits don't earn your enjoyment in God. They create space so you can receive it. The end goal, friend, It's not for you to have all the perfect habits. The end goal is so that you know God. And our problem is that our relationship with the creator of the universe is so shallow. It is so shallow that it is overshadowed by the pleasure that we feel when life is going well. I'm going to say that again. Our problem is that our relationship with God is so shallow that it is overshadowed by the pleasure that we feel when life is going well. What would you rather have, the presence of God or life going well? What about this, not this coming week, you know, we can answer that, yeah, Sunday school answer. What about this past week? What were we pursuing? What did your conversation look like? What does your bank account look like? What do your prayers look like? What does your time look like? Pursuing the presence of God or making sure life works out well? Because the invitation is that you get more of God, not more from God. That's the invitation to life. That you get more of God, not more from God. There was a pastoral conversation happening uh, a little while back. And, uh, and this person in our church was um, struggling with some things in life, finding identity and security in the things that God had provided rather than in God himself. And uh, as the conversation went on, true story, it was, brother, pursue the presence of God and pursue satisfaction in him. You don't need this, fill in the blank. What you need is God. And he said, well, I've got God. Now I need this. 
Friend, if you had God, what else would you need? If you had God, you would have freedom to live out of the identity that he has given you because now you're not taking the place of God. You are trusting God to fulfill his role and his purpose because you're able to fulfill your role and your purpose with your kids, at your job, with your spouse, here in the body of Christ, in the community and neighborhood. You're able to love out of the love that you've experienced with him and from him rather than manipulating others around you because you need something else. Several years ago, uh, I was at Target and I had Axel with me and uh, we, were, we were gonna get some Legos for him. And so we were looking at some, at some different toys and he was trying to pick it out. And so we're going through a couple of aisles. And I think after that, we were gonna go get some milkshakes at Chick-fil-A. And being the parent that I am, uh, which is why we don't do series on parenting, uh, quick caveat. Uh, but being the parent I am, sometimes what I like to do is when we're in a, a store, I like to hide from my kids. And I remember just like hiding as he's looking, I would just kind of sneak around past the end of the, of the aisle. And so he's sitting there looking, man, do I want, you know, Minecraft Legos or, you know, City, whatever it is. And uh, he's looking, all of a sudden he looks up and he doesn't see me. He's like, oh, dad must have gone to the other aisle. So he goes and he starts looking for me and he looks and he doesn't see me. And I'm like peeping out, you know, between like the clearance sections on the end. And I see him. And all of a sudden he looks down and this look of sheer terror comes across his face. You know what Axel didn't do? Now he's 11. He's sitting down here with a mullet on the front row. You know what Axel didn't do? He didn't say, oh, well, I came for Legos and I came for Chick-fil-A. That's why I'm on this trip. So I'm going to go get my Legos. I'm going to march myself all the way over across Jonesboro Road and get my Chick-fil-A. He didn't. You know why? Because in that moment, the most important thing to him was not what I was going to provide for him, but it was being with me. He realized his desperate need of his father, of being in a relationship with him. You know what I did? I didn't say, oh man, this is so much fun. I love seeing my kid freaking out and then run outside of the store. He'll find me eventually. No. I said, Axel, I'm right here, buddy. I'm right here. I'm, right here. I'm just messing with you. And guess what? He came up and gave me a big hug. Guess where he wanted to be the rest of the day? By my side. He wanted security. He wanted identity. He still wanted Legos. He still wanted a milkshake. <laughs> but more than anything else, our relationship overshadowed everything else that I was going to provide that day. The Westminster Confession, it begins with the chief end of man is to glorify God and what else? Enjoy him forever. We have the opportunity to step into a relationship with Jesus, to cultivate our relationship, to fulfill the desires that he has placed within us. That's why we have spiritual habits. So here they are. Here's a list of some spiritual habits I, I wrote down. And just so you know, the end goal, I mentioned this, is not for the sake of doing these things. John chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, to abide in me, remain in me. What does abiding and remaining look like? What should it look like in a marriage relationship? It's not simply checking in. 
Hey, are you awake this morning? You're alive. Okay, what's the to-do list? Boom, got it. Okay, dinner, 6.30, see you then. Adios. You get a dinner? Okay, so uh, did you accomplish everything that you're supposed to do today? You did it? Okay, boom, check, check, check. What's up? Okay, we're good. Tomorrow, dropping kids off, picking them up? Okay, boom, got it, done. But isn't that so often what our relationship looks like with the Father? If you looked at my marriage and that's the way it looked, you would say, man, that's not very relationally beautiful. Relational beauty is not by what me and my wife can accomplish. It's not what I can get from her. It's simply in being with her. It's in being with her. She doesn't offer me joy. She is my joy. She doesn't say, here's intimacy. She is my intimacy. Because I love abiding with her. Another definition, a way of defining that word abide there in John 15 is remain, to remain with her. These friends, this is how we remain, abide with the Father. First is through Bible intake. And I want us to notice how many of these are corporate in nature? Because some would say, uh, well, I just, wanna, I just wanna be like the Bereans, you know, in the New Testament. We have the Bereans who, uh, they went back and they examined the scriptures day in and day out. And they made sure that what the preacher was saying was okay. And so personal Bible reading, gotta do it day in and day out. Man, I'm all about some personal Bible reading. But by the way, the Bereans didn't have a copy of the word of God. They did it together in community because they didn't have their personal Bible. They didn't have it on their app. I'm not knocking personal Bible study. I'm saying it happens best in community. Bible intake. Secondly, prayer. And that's not just bringing our request to God, but it's listening to the heart of the Father, knowing him more. Thirdly, worship. And even a better definition of, of worship. We, we take, you've probably heard this, but it's worth-ship. Something that has the gravity and weight of declaring, I deserve your life. Worship could also be translated as sacrifice. Sacrifice. Evangelism. That's declaring the good news of the gospel of what Christ has done to those around us. Service. Using the gifts that the Spirit has given us for the sake of others. Silence and solitude. Anybody here terrible at that? Not enough hands. The seventh one there is meditation and memorization. Journaling. You're like, okay, now what's the Bible verse on each one of these? What's the Bible verse on the first one? Read your Bible every day. Do your devotions. As soon as we find that one, then we'll go to the second one, okay? But I would say that these spiritual habits are necessary to know God and understand him better. Journaling is important, and I'm terrible at this, by the way. I'm trying to get better. But it helps you see, here's how God has worked in my life up to this point, Sounds a lot like almost every single prophet that comes along and talks to Israel. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Sounds a lot like Luke chapter 24. Sounds a lot like Paul's epistles and what we see in Revelation that John writes. Here's what God has done so far. The next one there is stewardship. With our time, with our resources, with our conversations. Fasting. I separated this one from prayer. Jesus, what does he say? When you fast. And then lastly, Sabbath rest. You're like, so are you saying, what do you, can you define that for me? No, <laughs> I'm not going to. 
only because I don't, I don't want to get into it. But I would say Jesus Christ is our Sabbath rest. He came to fulfill the Old Testament law. And we also know that Sabbath rest happened pre-fall. It was a command pre-fall. So I would say if we are resting in Christ and taking time to stop and to sit back in silence and solitude and listening to the Spirit, the problem with our lives, friends, is that we fill every single void with something. We've, it, man, if we've got a few minutes, you know what I'm going to do? Instead of looking at my sermon notes last night, instead of spending time in prayer for you, I pulled out my Sudoku app and I played Sudoku for about 20 minutes. What a great use of my time. It was fantastic. I was brought so much closer to the Father just through the use of... No what does heaven look like on earth? In McDonough as it is in heaven... What does heaven look like on earth? It looks like the cross. It looks like the cross. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again three days later for us as his people. The, the perfect picture of relational beauty, of sacrifice, of love, of humility for us. And so if we want to have the right perspective of heaven and of others, we must go to the cross. Because it is at the cross that we see perfect relational beauty, obedience to the Father, love for his people. There's sacrifice there. There's love there. That's how McDonough is going to know that heaven is real. McDonald's not going to know that heaven is real because we have healing services here. It's not going to know that heaven is real because uh, we get out here and we do skits or we have people's you know, legs that are lengthened. Or McDonald's not going to know that heaven is real because we give back or simply because we have a community refrigerator or because we necessarily pray for them. McDonald's not going to know that heaven is real because we gather here for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings. McDonough is going to know that heaven is real when we love them the way that Christ loved them, in the way that he loved us from the cross, when we are sacrificing ourselves for them, for each other and for others, in the same way that Christ sacrificed himself on the cross. That's how McDonough is going to know that heaven is real. When Ephesians 1 takes root in our hearts and we live out of that identity rather than by creating an identity for ourselves. Heaven is relational beauty with Christ and with others. If you think back to that list of spiritual habits, can I just tell you that Satan does not care if you do every single one of those things on that list and still not love. The goal, the purpose of spiritual habits is to create space to spend time with the Father. The purpose of spiritual habits is not spiritual habits. Because if you spend all that time on those spiritual habits and you fail to love, who wins? You? God? Certainly not. The enemy wins. 
we must create space in our lives to pursue the presence of God because if you've got God, what else do you need? And the way that you have access to him is through his word, by spending time in prayer, by stopping, by listening, by memorizing scripture, by meditating on that. The, the folks who saw heaven that we talked about, they were humbled. They were humbled. They responded to it with worship. But who's the one person that saw heaven and nobody mentioned this. And you wouldn't normally think about this. But who's the one person or being, okay, tip, tip my cards a little bit. Who's the one being that saw heaven and did not respond in worship, but responded in pride? Satan. Satan himself. He saw the glory and the beauty, the relational beauty of the eternal trinity. And he turned his back in pride. Friend, my plea with you this morning is that you would not respond to the relational beauty of the Trinity that we see in John chapter 17. That you would not respond to the mission of God for the kingdom to be made known in our lives, in our community, in our city, and on the earth that we saw in Matthew chapter 6. My, my prayer for you this morning is that you would be living out of the identity that we see in Ephesians chapter 1 and that you would respond in humility, and in faith, in surrender, and in sacrifice. 